Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Robert Schwenkler. Robert is a love warrior, healer, and leader of men's work. He is the founder of the Brotherhood Community, an organization dedicated to the development of integrated male leaders, men who embody their power and sensitivity, and who are committed to thriving in all aspects of their life. Robert also does individual coaching with men where he blends spirituality and somatic healing to help clients open up emotionally. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Robert. Yeah, it's great to be here. Can you talk to me a little bit about your work, uh, what you do, and how you got into it? Yeah, so there are main two directions of my work at this point. The the one where most of my energy is going is the Brotherhood community, which you spoke about. And I also have a private practice where I work uh, primarily with I guess it, it tends to be a blend of people, but um, men and women oftentimes around relationship and intimacy and also people who are making a, a taking a, a leap into a next level of purpose or calling in their lives. The way that I got into it, I always try to figure out where I want to start with this story. So in this moment, let me start with 18 years ago, if you and I had been talking, I w- you would have found me basically a... a, a numb, hollow shell of a person. That's how I felt. I was simultaneously in an intense amount of inner emotional suffering, and yet I was extremely disconnected and you know, numbed out from my experience. And to the extent that I was in a deep, deep depression for years on end, I was suicidal, you know, had suicidal thoughts going on for years on end. And it was, you know, the darkest part of that whole period was about 18 years ago, probably 2002 or so. And it, uh, I made it through almost by grace and it set me on this path of inquiry because I looked at my life. I I grew up, you know, pretty privileged by most people's standards with parents who were together, who loved me and supported me. I was always supported to do the activities and interests that I, you know, that I felt like pursuing great education paid for all of these things. My parents made plenty of money and I was looking at my life and I was like, why am I suffering so deeply? Why do I feel so empty? Why do I want to kill myself? And so it's been this unraveling over the past almost two decades that really has catalyzed my journey into ultimately doing this work and holding these kinds of spaces for other men and for other people. One of the biggest turning points in particular in regards to my men's work was about five or six years ago. I was involved with a peer counseling community. It was one of the first really intentional spaces that I had put myself into to do my inner emotional work and healing work. And one of the one of the classes of the 16-week introductory course was around men and how we're socialized in this culture, in this country. And there were a number of pieces of the male experience that they articulated that just hit me really deeply. It shone light on parts of my experience that I hadn't even realized were there, that I hadn't even been able to put words to. It was a really emotional night for me. And I left with this really vague sense. I had no idea what men's work was. I didn't know, had no thoughts of becoming a coach or let alone leading retreats and creating global men's community, anything like that. I just knew I needed to do something with men. 
And since that point, as I'm sure you can relate, it's been this journey of, I see the very next step. So I'm going to take that step. And by the time I've taken that step, the next step appears. And it's been this journey of making my way forward and continuing to reveal a, a broader purpose and a broader mission and also deepen my connection and my fire and the amount of the amount of connection and clarity that I have around that, you know, that purpose forward. I want to take a few steps back. You're talking a little bit about going through some sort of dark stages in your life, being in deep depression. And I'm assuming that you feel like you've moved out of that. It's still stuff that's present with me on a daily basis. It's it's not like I'm totally absent from the feelings of disconnection uh, or isolation. You know, those things are still constant parts of my experience. And I have an extraordinary life. I love my life. I have more of a sense of aliveness and joy and fulfillment. I have really rich relationships. I do work that I deeply love. You know, I'm doing what I'm on this earth to do. and there still are these parts that I'm, you know, these parts that I'm still healing around and that I'm still moving through. And I don't, you know, as far as I can tell in my experience of being a human, we never get all the way there. I don't think I'm going to reach a point during this lifetime where I'm levitating on air and, and completely blissful a hundred percent of the time. There's always going to be something that I'm bumping into, particularly if I continue to stay on this purpose of stepping more deeply into my purpose and into my calling and making a difference in the world. I think if we're not running into bumps on that trajectory forward, then we're actually doing it wrong. I think those are absolutely great points. It's just sort of the importance of getting comfortable with your emotions. And some of our emotions are not always positive, right? And that's, a, I think, an important lesson that a lot of people have to learn. Yeah, well, and I, I want to say something about that because our culture oftentimes relates to emotions as negative and positive. And my take on it at this point is that we we are given this framework. It's almost a non-framework that we're given to relate to ourselves and our inner worlds. And oftentimes it's incredibly dysfunctional. And what I hold as a core belief in all of the work that I do, and this really connects to the private work that I do uh, with singles and couples is that our emotions in a biological context, that they're actually there, that the sole fundamental purpose of emotions is to drive us into action, to restore us to equilibrium and good health. Our emotions are actually meant to keep us healthy and to keep us grounded, but we learn these incredibly dysfunctional ways to relate to them. They come out sideways. They don't come out at all. They show up as depression, anxiety, you know, all these different things. And I attribute all of that to a culture that is just largely unwilling to acknowledge our emotions and the, the whole range of them, you know. One of the things I want to ask you earlier, and I'm still going to go back to it, is the times you're at the lowest point in your life to whatever point you are at now, where even if you're you're struggling through some of this stuff, you're able to help other people and you feel like, I'm assuming you feel like you're at a place where you are more comfortable with yourself and your emotions. Like what were the drivers that were causing most of that pain? And they still might be there. I'm, I'm just, I want to understand because I feel like if we dig into this, that people who are listening to this might be able to relate to it. Yeah, totally. One of the things so like I mentioned, I started on this journey of inner inquiry about 18 years ago, and I, I was looking at my life, asking myself the question, why am I suffering so deeply? 
and I really, I couldn't put my finger on it. And it's taken a number of years for me to get to the point where those answers are emerging for me. So a lot of people hear the word trauma and they think, oh, car crash, or they think, oh, sexual abuse or physical abuse or something really overt and something that you can really put your finger on. You can say that happened to me. That's what, you know, quote, messed me up or that's what traumatized me. And that's, that's, you know, that's the thing that happened. And, you know, th there have been a couple of those, a couple, like one of those moments in my life that still took me a long time to open up to, which, which was the death of my baby brother when I was just over a year old. So I'd known about him for my whole life. It wasn't a secret that I had a baby brother, but it took 30, what, 35 years for my body to unfreeze to the impact not only of my brother dying, but to the impact that that had on my mother. I not only lost my brother, but I lost my mother. You know, she, I can't imagine the amount of grief and depression and anxiety and all the whole different range of feelings that she was experiencing. I know that she was in, uh, I, I think you know, she still isn't in a lot of ways. And certainly then I don't think she was very well emotionally resourced. Again, our culture doesn't equip our communities with the tools to deal with grief or to deal with pain or suffering in very elegant ways. So I lost my brother. I lost my mother simultaneously. And the rest of, you know, pretty much all the rest of it, I can attribute to my sensitivity as a human being. I think that that's not a word that's oftentimes associated with men or maybe that men oftentimes even push away because it, it sounds weak or sissy or not masculine. And the truth is, is that, you know, through my own experience and through my work with men, I find that we're exquisitely sensitive and we know when a situation feels safe and we know when it doesn't. And so from, uh, from the lineage, my father's lineage of a, a bunch of, you know, middle class, my grandpa was a middle class, upper middle class man who was working his way up the corporate ladder. Uh, my dad's brother has told me that he was one of the emotional, most emotionally distant men you could have ever imagined. And the, his mom was raising seven kids, an incredibly brilliant and intelligent woman, but from what I can gather about her felt really stifled in her expression and uh, in numerous ways. And my dad grew up feeling like his parents never loved him. And then on my mom's side of the family, there's a bunch of acute sexual trauma, sexual abuse, physical abuse. There's there's all, all this trauma being passed down through the lineage. And it showed up for me, the, the specific way that it showed up for me being a really emotional, a really expressive, a really sensitive person is that there isn't space for me. There isn't space for my expression. There isn't space for my anger at you know, feeling misattuned to around my needs in a particular moment, or there isn't space for my sadness or my grief because my mom's, my mom's checked out from the death of my brother or my dad's just, you know, numbed out period. Can you give an example of not having space? I, I can't really. And this, see, this is the thing that has made it so, well, I can only now it's only now at this point in my life as I start to open up and bring more of my energy, uh, I, I'm actually able to articulate it. I can't look, you know, all of this has, so I'll give you a specific example in a moment, but I want to say that all of what I'm speaking about has emerged. It's not through cognitive processing or even through what I would call coaching. It's been through what I would call somatic therapy. It's been through trauma healing and through uh, physically and somatically 
putting myself in spaces for my my nervous system to open back up to unthaw from depression and from apathy and from anxiety i'll say a lot of that happened on just like a, a ongoing kind of low-level basis yeah i want to come back to this some of the work that you're doing around somatic healing a lot of people who are listening to this are, are not, not going to have any idea what that means and if it's helpful for them we, we definitely want to define it for them but i do want to go back to what you mean by like a specific example where you didn't feel like you had space uh, to emote or space to be angry because otherwise it, it becomes too vague and i think it, it becomes hard for people to, to process and connect with yeah and and again like that has been one of my essential struggles is i can't put my finger on any specific any specific moments where that happened as a child but what i'm you know i'm starting to see as i open up more and more as an adult i'm I, i'm the light is getting shown on these places where for instance just 2 days ago on father's day it's June 19th as we're recording this. I called up my dad to uh, to say Happy Father's Day, and we were chatting a little bit. And he mentioned a piece that I had published, a, a, a written piece that I had published about a month ago, which was about my uh, name change. I changed my middle name recently, and the very short of the story is that I was named after the leader of the cult that I was born into, who, as it turns out, uh, was... Um, absolutely emotionally and spiritually manipulating people. He was using their uh, their suffering and their deepest points of shame and pain to uh, sexually violate many of the women in the community. Uh, he was, you know, people would give all their money to them, like really stereotypical cult stuff. He died while I was still in utero and and my parents named me after him. So I was carrying the legacy of a rapist and a thief and a manipulator around in my middle name for most of my life. And the full impact of, you know, the, the direct and full impact of how that showed up in my family with my parents, as well as the psychic impact that that had on me only opened up again, as my body has unfrozen and unthought and my emotional systems have come back online that only opened up for me last year, a little over a year ago. So, so that's important context to set for this conversation. So I was talking to my dad uh, yesterday about this article that I'd written about some of the pieces that I've put together, talking to various relatives about what happened way back then and about my journey at this point in my life uh, of changing my name, what it means to me. And I was talking to my dad and he says, yeah, I was starting to uh, write some words. I wanted to respond to your article and um, we, we started to talk about it a little bit and it's some stuff that I had heard from him before and basically what I heard him starting to go into was that the experience there wasn't all bad and that he actually had a great experience there and in the past he's a, a couple years ago when I was talking to him and my mom about it he even I even brought up because I had researched it there's a little bit of information on the web I said it like it sounds to me like people were actually you know, there was sexual abuse going on there. And I remember my dad saying something to the effect of, yeah, well, that's what some people say. And there's this way where I experience him as being so shut down to his own feelings and his own emotional pain that he has such a little capacity to be with or acknowledge, even acknowledge that in somebody else. So here I am putting my heart out to the world, sharing a deep, uh, 
legacy of psychic trauma that I'm healing through and that has also had an extraordinary impact in the life of my mom. And, and it was my mom's sister, my mom's brother, my dad's sister. It was a family affair. It had a, a, a tremendous impact on many members of his family. And here he is showing up in a conversation saying it wasn't all bad. And so I get it. I, I can look at the good side of things too, but to jump to the good side of things before we acknowledge the, you know, to to avoid acknowledging the truth of suffering and jumping to the good things is a spiritual bypass. And it's in, it, it just like, it was incredibly painful for me in the moment. Uh, just this past Sunday, it brought up this deep cutting pain inside of my heart. It brought up this feeling, and literally these are the thoughts that I've been having since. I've gotten some support and processed some of this, but it's still alive for me. The pain that I experienced in that moment when I felt the way that his heart was closed to acknowledging not only my pain, but the pain of his wife and the pain of other members of that community and the pain of uh, uh, other people in his family cut so deep that it brought me back to 18 years ago when I did want to take my own life. I was ready to cut my wrists open and bleed myself dry because it hurt so bad. And and it's like I felt that again in that moment uh, from that place where he – I experienced his heart as incredibly closed off, and that's a really painful experience for me. So hopefully that grounds it a bit. Like, it, I want to say that so much of what I'm putting words to is a completely felt experience, and ultimately, you know, words aren't going to totally do it justice. But I'll do my best because that's what we've got right now. I mean, I, I totally understand. I think it's through language that we try to structure chaos, right? And so um, it's through so much of the emotional experience is hard to put in words, but even when we're most the most effective at trying to articulate the way we feel, it doesn't always come across the way we want it to. Yeah, let me add just a little bit more that I think may help. It, it's still a you know maybe a, a a level up on abstractness, but I think it may help ground it. There was a, a study from um, I think this was World War II in London when children were taken away. When bombings were happening, they were taken away to safe houses um, to, to keep them safe. Other areas, I don't know all the deepest details, but they were taken away from the families and their parents to, to keep them, quote, safe. What they found when they studied these kids and they brought them back and they compared them to kids who had stayed in London or wherever in the UK, I'm assuming it was London, uh, but the, the kids who weren't separated but who were still in the midst of all of that violence actually ended up faring better because they they stayed connected to their families. The kids who were taken away ended up with more trauma from the experience because they, they experienced the disconnection from their, their parents and their family and the, the sense of safety that they have on an emotional level. So what this means for us as, as boys and as men growing up today is that when our parents or the people around us are shut down to their emotions, we feel that and it has an impact on us. And that gets lodged in our nervous system as, in, in my judgment, in my experience so far, as the pain of disconnection. And that ends up expressing itself in a whole multitude of ways. For some people, it shows up as anger. For some people, as depression. For some people, anxiety. And it doesn't have to be overt. It can simply be my dad uh, didn't pay much attention to me because he was too busy working. Or it could be my mom was constantly smothering me with her attention. Or it could be uh, my mom and my dad were constantly bickering and 
and the, you know, the impact it had on me. There's a whole ton of different flavors that I've heard from different people. And that, that level of uh, emotional misattunement has a tremendous impact on us. It sounds to me like that disconnection has led you to find some of that connection in the men's groups uh, you've been involved in and maybe begun to form. Would you agree that's true? Yeah, absolutely. And again, this is only something I can articulate in retrospect as I started. When I started doing it, it was just I knew I needed to do it. I knew I needed to not only put myself around men, but put myself around men who I could trust, men who I could trust with their vulnerability and their honesty and who weren't putting up guards around their truth and their hearts and their their truest experience. What were some of the things that you discovered that made you feel more emotionally connected? I mean, I have a theory that there's sort of this journey that every man needs to go on, right? And it's just part of life, right? Like we, starting from the time we're born, we're we, at some point, we have to learn to stand up on our own and take our first steps and feed ourselves all the way to you're 17, 18, 20, 25, and you have to figure out how do I develop my own craft? How do I support myself? So find my own space. How do I develop my own community, right? And the community that we grew up in or were raised in might not be the right community for us. I, I heard Bob Dylan once say that, in an interview that some of us are born in the wrong family. And I don't mean that in sort of a literal sense, but there's definitely people that you might find that you identify with or connect with emotionally more than the people that you were raised with. And maybe that's because they're emotionally shut down. Maybe it's because you just have different interests. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It can That conflict can be challenging, but it sounds like for you, because of some of the experiences that your parents went through, that you found these groups to be helpful. Even for your dad, I think one of the things, and I'm just making a, an assumption here, is when he's talking about it not being all that bad, I think I have a sense that he's probably, for him, um, for all the negative things that a lot of people experience, it sounds like it might have had some of the same soothing aspects that you now get out of men's groups, and he might not be able to articulate it, right? And so him giving you that middle name, might be a trauma for you, but for him, in some way, it was a compliment, or it was something he was giving the gift of something that was um, that was emotionally meaningful to him, and maybe he can't articulate that. But I, I I'm just sort of listening, trying to process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I I would agree. I would agree with that. People get involved in communities because they're they feel that there's something there for them, and what we call cults are no exception. There, are, you know, there, there's a deep sense of belonging that people find there. That's why they are able to immerse themselves so deeply into it and open up so deeply into them. So I'm not suggesting people jo join cults. If you're listening to this, <laughs> that is definitely not what I'm suggesting, but, um, but there is this need for community, right? And so I, I feel like there's, as you describe your family and sort of your connection to your family, it, it sounds like you weren't getting something that you needed. And so you've begun to find that in the communities that you build with other men who are struggling with similar challenges or going through some similar emotional experiences or and and so I'm curious what are are some of the things that when you're in your community groups that that you really connect to or some of the things that come up I know as a, a coach um, Crafter Charisma does a lot of social and dating coaching but oftentimes we find there's deeper stuff there and so I, I'm curious what are some of the things that come up in these groups that sort of allowed you to connect and maybe find some of the support that you need in order to uh, nurture your own emotional development at the essence of it it's 
being shown not just in words but much more in actions that it's okay for me to it, it, like I'm okay how I am if I have big emotions that it's actually safe and invited for me to have those emotions and that they're not going to be uh, you know made wrong or uh, looked down upon or or shut down or invalidated or anything like that so at the essence of I think all community is a sense of belonging in the sense of I fit in here and who I am is accepted. And so for me, as somebody who has a, a really deep drive to access and embody my the full range of my emotional expression, being in spaces that not only allows but invites that is incredibly important to me. And that tends to be the kinds of guys that we attract also as guys who are looking for rich, full range of expression in all the areas of their life, whether it's career, whether it's sex, whether it's relationship and friendship, just life in general. So it sounds to me, based on what I'm hearing, it's both an acceptance of yourself and the acceptance of other people in the group because you feel like you can connect with them because in certain ways they're like you. So there's a cliche in the personal development world that you need to learn how to love yourself first. And while there's some level of truth to that, my belief is that the only way that we ever find and access that love for ourselves is how it's is through the reflections that we get from other people. So if I put myself in a space with people who deeply and truly love me, and and when I say love, that's not even an abstract thing. It's where my experience is made okay and validated is what I mean by love in this case. Uh, when I learn that, that who I am and what and, and my expression and my, my, my experience as a human being is good and okay and welcomed, then that has me start to essentially trust who I am, I trust the inner mechanisms and the inner workings of my emotional experience. And as I learn to trust myself, I get more in alignment with my expression and I stop doubting my, and this totally translates to, you know, if your audience is mostly guys in the dating and relationship realm, this totally translates. If I trust myself and I trust my instincts and I trust my intuitions and I trust my emotions and I, I'm in right relationship with all of those things, I have access to everything that I want. And, and not in a, I'm going to go take what I want kind of a way, but I have access to the the intimacy and the confidence and the really rich, deep, the most amazing sexual experiences that I never could have imagined beforehand. I have access to all of that without, without a whole lot of effort, really. Or rather, I want to say it takes work, but there's a sense of ease to it all. There's a sense of flow to it all rather than a constant sense of struggle, like I'm pushing a boulder up a hill. And the the more that I have my rightness reflected back to me, the more that I know that for myself and the more that I bring that to everywhere else in my life uh, and, and my work and dating, relationships, sex, all of the above. I think they're absolutely interesting points. It made me think of a few things. One, in the dating self-development world for a long time, people perpetuate this idea of being self-validating. And I think there's a lot of guys who need to learn to become more self-validating um, but if you're only self-validating, then you do everything only for your own validation, then you're never going to connect with anybody. And on the other side of the spectrum, um, you have people who are 
they're primarily validated from the community. And there's times where you definitely need validation from your community to be part of a community, to have connection. And then there's times you're going to have to say, move away from the community and go on your own because it's the right thing for you. It's the right thing at that time that might separate you from that community. It could be your family. It could be your religion. If you're religious, it could be your school or some philosophical or political spectrum. Um, but it connects back to something that you had sent me in an email and you said that a lot of your clients are either men who can't figure out how to express themselves emotionally uh, or they're trying to figure out their masculinity or on the other side, they're so alpha, so they're so self-validated that they don't connect with anybody. And I find that that's absolutely true. Like for our clients, they're on one of these two sides of the spectrum. And at times in our life, we might drift towards one or the other. I, I find that there's a lot of guys who come in and they're there. It's normal as a kid. You are constantly in need of the validation of the people around you. That's how you survive. And uh, you get to a point where you start to break away. I talked earlier about sort of that life journey where you begin to break away and you have to go out and find your own tribe and find your own craft and find your own space. And in that process, uh, you have to begin to find your voice and find uh, and trust your own instinct. And sometimes you'll pull back, uh, you'll pull away from your community. Sometimes you'll pull back to your community. Uh, but yeah, other at, at points when guys are going through this process of breaking away, they go so far to the other end where, yeah, they don't connect with anybody. And I want you to talk a little bit about that because I found it absolutely fascinating. And it was that sentence uh, that caused me to have uh, Mike reach out to you and, and bring you on the show. Yeah, I'm glad you're bringing that up because that's a really important distinction because a lot of what we were just talking about is the the need for validation from our community, the need to be loved uh, with the brotherhood community and in my men's work and in all of my work, but especially with the men that we work with. At the essence of all of that is what we call integrated leadership. So it's taking these two polarities the that this the archetypal alpha male and then the archetypal beta male and i just want to say also as an aside like the way that our culture relates to those words is so uh skewed from how they actually show up in nature oftentimes the meaning we put on alpha and beta that's just like not accurate to nature yeah but so anyway like you know this integration of the alpha and beta the leader and the follower um or the 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 alpha stereotypical douchebag dude and then the the nice guy wimpy nice guy who's always in the friend zone and can't get what he wants from women and there are positive aspects to both of those but yeah for the for the nice guy there is an element of learning how to trust himself and to be more um self-referencing and to be able to say i want this thing and i'm going to go after it and then for the alpha guy there is a prerogative to be a little bit less uh, self-referencing oftentimes because some of those guys might be showing up like bulls in a china shop and getting what they want without regard for the impact it has on other people so those are both really important qualities though my ability to take strong leadership to uh, live and lead with potency to have clarity to be goal-oriented and take the action that it that it requires to get those results that's important it's also important to be attuned to the impact that I'm having as I take those actions. It's important for me to be attuned to my own inner guidance, a deeper level of spiritual guidance that is um, that's not just about the sex or the money or the 
getting the good looking woman or getting the, the right job, you know, it's actually uh, the part of us that's going to guide us on what I would call a deeper spiritual calling that ultimately is going to have a beneficial impact in the world, not just get us some stuff that uh, is going to leave us still feeling hollow at the end of the day. So how do we integrate those two parts? And that ultimately is what my work is about. Dating coach Chris Luna here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchristmas.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. I would love to have you expand on some of the things that you use to integrate these two parts, right? Because I feel like definitely having community and having someone to talk through situations is part of that. Um, I, I would love you to add on anything that you think would be helpful for the people listening. Yeah, the community element, it's important. Um, I wrote a piece just the other day, actually, and I was speaking about this piece uh, around... Um, in particular, men who are, say, perpetrating uh, sexual violence or even like being accused of harassment and stuff like this, which is that these men are hurting inside. I like I work with these guys uh, and plenty of other guys too, but we've had these guys in our intensives, and they're hurting inside. They have elements of tragedy in their past, and so a lot of our culture. Uh, maybe not a lot, but certainly like a good amount of people in our culture might look at these people and say like, lock them up and throw away the fucking key. And that is just buying into um, a punitive justice system that that's just saying, make the problem go away, basically. Whereas what I'm looking for is, yes, sometimes those guys need to be broken down. They have walls thick around their hearts and they don't get the damage that they're creating in the world. And Sometimes you need to crack that the fuck open. Sometimes what love means in the context of community and a circle of men is guys who are going to put the heat on and call you out on your bullshit and crack you the fuck open to the stuff that you weren't willing to look at or acknowledge about yourself to deeper truths. Sometimes that's what community and love means. And that would be more on the polarity of the, the alpha side, the what I would call the more masculine or penetrative or dominant side of the, the spectrum of polarity. And then and you can't just leave a guy there if you want him to go on to truly make a positive impact in the world. If you just break somebody down and then you leave them and you kick them out, they're just gonna they're gonna hurt just that much worse and it's gonna go on and and uh, He's going to go on to hurt himself and or other people in potentially even more uh, intense ways. So what's needed at that point is 
is acceptance and love and this other piece that I was speaking about it like he needs to have a space to come back into where he is um, not given a total green card for everything that he's done but where he is accepted for who he is and the circumstances that drove him to to become who he became and do what he did and uh, to learn how to integrate his softer side his feeling body, the part of him that is able to access empathy and actually notice and get when he's misattuned to somebody, when he, uh, you know, says something to a woman that actually is uh, like has her feel unsafe or has her feel uh, like her boundaries are being pushed to have a community that nurtures and supports that part of himself coming back online as well. And what you, what you get when you take those two elements, the, the cracking down, the breaking open, and the nurturance and the acceptance and the capacity for emotional resonance, is you have an integrated man who, who shows up uh, with equal potency as he does empathy. And what I find is that those guys create the results that they actually want in the world. They're, they're people in the world who say, you know, pay lip service, oftentimes unknowingly to the impact and results they want to create in the world. But have they really done the integration, the work to um, truly own their deeper shadows, truly own the deeper pains and wounds that they're bringing into and um, and that are being infused into the fabric of the organization or the community or the whatever structures that they're building, whether it's a business or a community or a family? Um and can they show up as integrated men who who, who lead, lead fiercely and who also uh, give a shit about the people around them and give a shit about themselves and the people that they have an impact on? I think these are all great points. And I think if somebody who fits that stereotype and they're listening to this, um, they'll begin to identify with it and recognize themselves. But most men are not on the far sort of right of this alpha spectrum. So we have this other side of the spectrum where guys are trying to figure out how to be an alpha or how to find their masculinity or how to express themselves emotionally. What's happening with these guys? Yeah, there's a big smile that comes out over my face as you say that, uh, probably partially because that's me, you know, that's me, uh, where I'm coming from in my life. And because that work is so rich. Um, so let me just say that there's a really deep anger process that we run during our weekend where we give these guys the chance to, to literally fight, engage their physical bodies to go full out in a fully physical way against the voices that we, we physically embody the voices that have been running in their heads and keeping them down. And, and for the kind of guy that we're talking about here, that's kept them soft. And I'm, I'm going to use what might be perceived as harsh language. I'm going to go ahead and just do it here that have kept them soft and weak and floppy and wimpy um, and unable to, to, live with potency and vitality and to create, create the results that they want, whether it's in their business, money, sex, relationship. Um, what a lot of these guys have learned to do is to give up. They've learned to live in some form of apathy or depression or anxiety. And the opposite of apathy and depression and anxiety is fighting for your fucking life in a, in a very physical way. So we actually give guys the opportunity to do that uh, at, our weekend and tap into the potency and vitality that anger holds for us as men that most of the guys on the nice guy side of the spectrum have largely disowned because in numerous ways in my judgment and my perception we've been taught that 
men's anger is bad and wrong and it violates and it hurts and it damages. And there's truth to that, but it's not the truth. You know, when we when we simply disown that part and we turn it off, we suffer, we lose our ability, you know, we lose access to our, our vitality. And it oftentimes ends up coming out sideways too. We emotionally manipulate people through passive aggressive stuff. We instead of confronting a situation head on, we withdraw. And if certainly if we're doing that in a relationship that's important to us, withdrawing can be one of the most damaging things we can do in the relationship. So we learn all these passive ways of um, manipulating the world around us to try to keep it comfortable for us because I'm not comfortable getting angry or drawing a boundary or asserting myself. But it's it's just a manipulation game that a lot of these guys are running. And so bringing some fierceness and some um, some potency and some challenge to those kinds of men can be the thing that can really help them crack open to their deeper truth. I was thinking about a guy that I was coaching recently and I noticed that he had a pattern where he would have a conflict. He would second, avoid the conflict or let it go. Third, he would, that would create some level of resentment or paranoia. And then fourth, he would simmer on it and then sort of express it or explode or pull back or disconnect. And as you were describing that, I, I was thinking about sort of that process and he would do it over and over and over. And one of the things we had to figure out was, well, first we had to identify that was what was happening and we had to come up with some processes for sort of breaking that pattern so that he could, could connect. And really it was about expressing himself early, right? So instead of letting every conflict go or avoiding it, uh, speaking up when things bothered them. So they didn't simmer and he didn't resent and didn't, um, disconnect and then it didn't later on explode or become what girls were saying was he's becoming he was passive aggressive and that's really sort of like the no more mr nice guy syndrome like that was sort of the pattern that he was falling into um you you talked a little bit about this idea of semantic healing and i guess that that connects to the, the nervous system right and so maybe you can talk about that and give more specific examples of something that you guys might do physically in the workshops in order to help people who are attending connect more with their bodies yeah well i so i just gave you an example that's a, a beautiful example for um doing deep somatic work around anger and aliveness and potency the one that i just described it's it's not a talking based process it's not a go inside and and you know what you were talking about with your client just there it's beautiful work learning how to cognitively articulate what's going on uh, that has been laying subconscious, it's, it's important knowing that, okay, in this kind of a situation, I respond X, Y, and Z, and then this is the outcome typically important work. And ultimately, you know, and I would, I would wager to say that what you're wanting for your client is not that every time that happens, he has to go into his head and say, and go like, okay, X, Y, Z, this is the outcome, uh, and go up into his head and figure it out. I would imagine you just want him to naturally embody uh, confidence and assertiveness and be able to instinctively respond in the moment before it ever even starts to become a thing. Just handle it in that instant. Yeah. In, in our classes, what I've recognized is that the first thing that happens, well, the first stage that people go through is a stage where I describe them as being lost. And what I mean by that is they don't know when something is working or not working. They're just, they're, they're not really aware of what's happening. And so they have a hard time having consistent outcomes, right? Whatever that outcome is. I mean, you think about getting up and making 
breakfast in the morning. Like it might be a little different every time, but most of you, most of the people who are listening to this have the ability to do that, whether they're making cereal or making eggs, they sort of can predict a predictable outcome. And, and whether it's meeting and connecting with people or setting up a date or getting into a relationship, um, they're asking for some type of measurable result when they come into our coaching. So the very first thing I realize is guys are just lost. They're just not aware. And so when they start going through our coaching, one of the first things that happens is I start tapping into all these sort of general or even deeper truths where there's things that they've experienced or seen, but they couldn't articulate. And I give them language to do that. And whether it's an example where I just used where this guy is going through this specific process or pattern, or it's how do you touch a girl? Like this is every guy who's ever had sex with a woman has had to go from not touching her to touching her. So what is that what does that process look like? And so I give them specific language in order to do that. And uh, it could be touch. It could be about emotional connection. It could be about uh, around getting close to somebody. I mean, there's really only a, a series of specific things if we're talking about, for example, seduction or courtship. But the same thing is true about if you're trying to make friends or get into a, a better emotional place, or you're trying to transition to a relationship, or you're trying to sustain a relationship. So the first uh, stage is the stage of being lost. The second is the stage of awareness where they start to become aware. The third stage I call control. And what, what that means is they start to, in the st- second stage of awareness, they start to realize, oh, I should touch somebody and this is how I should do it. But their reaction times are usually really slow because they're in their head. And what happens is as they start to get control over this skill set, um, they're able to label what's happening, the emotion, and then react those response times shrink, right? So they're like, I should touch. And then they do touch. And so these response times shrink. And then the fourth stage is where they don't have to really think about it. They just sort of becomes a part of them. And so if somebody's listening to this and they ever rode a bicycle or drove a car or cooking breakfast, I use the cooking breakfast example, but there's something in their life where they do and they don't really have to think about it very much. They just sort of can go based off instinct. And uh, most of my clients, I'm trying to get into those last two stages. So that, that's sort of like how we, even right now I'm doing, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to take something that people understand instinctively and give language to it. We structure our experience. We structure chaos through language. And, and there's some limitations in that. There's limitations when you use a model. There's limitations when you use language, but we're trying to, uh, we're measured on our ability to get specific results. And, and the way that we do that is we structure the world through language and try to give people the language in order to get specific outcomes. I don't know if that helps you totally. understand what we yeah. do. No, no, I love that. That actually gives, uh, I mean, that I think that's a great cognitive framework that I can launch off of to describe something that's totally non-cognitive. So I, lo- I love what you're saying. And one of the distinctions that I make around much of my work and that I make around the the deeper work that certainly we do during our men's weekends and, and that can be done in shorter periods of time too. Um, the, so the distinction that I make is, uh, and what I hold is that every guy out there on a fundamental level, he knows what to do intuitively. His body knows. His nervous system was born to act and react intuitively and instinctively. So so that's tenant number one. Guys know how to do this. There's a bunch of conditioning and a bunch of layers on top that uh, that keep us from doing that, that, that have us suppress those intuitive expressions. And I love what you're saying, you know, like you have a beautiful framework for guiding guys from uh, like unable to express to intuitive expression. Well, I want to make one point where you're saying it's absolutely consistent with my experience. Like somebody 
like a guy is around a woman that he's attracted to or a woman's around a guy that he's attracted to, he or she wants to touch them, right? And there's all these reasons why they don't. Or I usually say that when you there's something that we value, we first see it, then we try to get close to it, then we try to touch it, then we try to hold it. And, and I agree. And then the reason why I'm using this example or sort of step in is because I, I would just want the people who are listening to this to have a concrete example so that they can measure their own life experiences or perspective or whatever against so that hopefully it resonates a little bit, a little bit stronger. But I absolutely agree. I think oftentimes we do know what it is that we want. We might not always be able to articulate it even to ourselves, but um, we're, we're instinctively drawn to it. So keep going. Yeah, so the distinction between what you're talking about and a somatic experience and an experience of um, somatic processing or healing work is, um, so I'll go back to the anger example, for instance. If there's a guy who's, so anger and aliveness and vitality, they're super interconnected. Boundaries also, our ability to get what we want, the super connected with the energy of anger. So I'm going to use that as an example. So if if I take you and me and um, four other guys pin you down on the floor and are just holding you down with our full strength and we tell you to get the fuck up like use your whole like use all of your force all of your energy to get up there might be a number of thoughts that go through your head there might be like oh this is too many guys or i don't believe in myself that i can get up or you might be like fuck these guys i'm totally gonna get up and so we could pause for a moment and we could say um we could, you know, we could articulate what are the different uh, thoughts that are going on inside of his head and and get more of a cognitive framework for what's happening inside of him. And that could be useful. That would be useful. Um, the distinction between uh, the, the, the process and the structure that you're laying out and what somatic uh, work is, is the somatic work is going directly to the intuition. It's going directly into the feeling body. It's saying, okay, we're pinning you down get the fuck up. Like, don't think about it. You get into your body and you fight with all of your might. Like you fight like you're fighting for your life to get up and you access your primal raw instinctive energy in this moment. Like we're providing a space for you to be a hundred percent in your intuitive feeling body. You're not going to think about this. You're not going to think about what's the best move. You're just going to do, you're going to act. Your body's going to respond. And, and afterwards, you might have insights. You might say, oh, wow, like I noticed how I was responding in that moment and X, Y, and Z were some of the things that came up for me. And uh, these are some of the places where I had resistance. So somatic work is, is basically inverting the process that you're talking about. What the process you're describing might be what's called the top-down process. It's starting with the cognitive intellectual capacities and it's working your way down into the intuitive felt capacities. Um, what, what I do often in my private practice and what we do often in our men's work is we start with the felt experience. Like we we directly bypass the brain and we go into your body and you say, okay, well, like what are you noticing inside of your body? Like how do you want to express yourself right now? Is it anger? Is it shut down? And sometimes there are guys who just want to collapse and they want to they want to shut down and we say, okay, do that because most of us spend so much time in a collapsed state but resisting it saying, why am I not taking action? Why can't I approach the girl? Why can't I say the right thing? You know, uh, And we beat ourselves up for it. And this again, this goes back to this piece of being accepted for who we are within a community. One of the types of things we might do with somebody is give them full permission to collapse and not just to collapse, but to like intensify that in their body so that they feel it so deeply 
that it actually starts to move through their system instead of being stuck in their body. And what, and what is it, there, there's, there's a release because guys, and, and you know, I'm talking about guys cause we're talking about guys, but this is all people. Um, but guys, uh, live in this stasis point in the middle where they're, where they're, it's like one foot's on the gas and one foot's on the brakes. Well, if there's one foot on the brakes, uh, let's just take a moment and fully put our foot on the brakes and feel what it's been like for our entire lives to have had the foot on the brakes and to not be able to take the action that we want and just to go fully into the experience, whatever it is, like the pain, the anxiety, the um, the helplessness of not being able to take the action that we want. Let's go fully into that because it's it's been choosing us for our entire life on some level. That pattern, that emotional pattern has been choosing us and choosing our life and dictating the outcomes. So if I want to take some agency in my life, in my life, I can turn around and say, no, I'm going to choose that state. I'm going to choose that feeling state of helplessness or helplessness is usually a surface layer underneath of it. It's usually anxiety or fear or anger or some deeper emotion that we've suppressed. So, I can give a concrete example. I'm remembering a, my colleague was working with a guy and he brought him deep into a collapsed state and not just a collapsed state, but like he said, tighten up your whole body around this darkness, this feeling, this suffering, this pain inside of you, intensify the pain inside of your body. And the guy started like cracking open and there was, I could see he was exerting himself and he started breathing harder and there was just a tremendous amount of emotion started actually moving through his body because he turned around and he chose that emotion instead and when we choose it and we 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 choose it as our experience that oftentimes gives it um again emotions are meant to drive us to equilibrium and health so if i'm choosing the emotion and i allow that energy this might sound kind of like abstract or woo woo but we're literally made out of energy our nervous systems operate on energy if i allow that energy that's been locked in my nervous system to actually flood into me and to move through me and my body to express the way that it wants to then something happens it, it's like something gets cleared up something gets moved through um, my nervous system is a little bit more open to following intuitive expression and I'm aware that there's there's like a layer of abstraction here again, like I'm putting words to the to stuff that's really hard to put words to. But if there are any ways you want to reframe what I'm saying to articulate it or ask a question, I'm happy to do that. Yeah, well, a few things that come to mind. One is it's become very clear to me that we hold trauma in our bodies, not just in our minds, but in our muscular system. I don't understand how the mechanics of that work, but I've watched it over and over and over through the course of my life in, in different contexts where you get these emotional, uh, you can see these emotional traumas manifest in physical behaviors or hangups or mannerisms. I'm going to use a specific example, and then I'm going to go to some other examples where I've seen people work through these things in different contexts. And it sounds like the exercises that you're doing fall within that same realm. So I had a client the other day where I was working with him and we were talking about a date that he had just left. And he said that she went to touch him and he pulled back or he flinched. And what that probably meant to her, that was a signal, right? So she looked, she went to touch him and he flinched. He pulled back and it was a consequence of uh, being beat as a kid. His mom was a little bit of abusive and, and that affected his ability to be touched. And in the conversations with some of his family members, he realized that they have the same problem. And so th this physical process of being hit has caused him 
to have anxieties around when somebody tries to touch him. And so this woman picked this up and she apologized. She goes, I'm sorry. And all she was trying to do is touch his shoulder in a normal way that you would be touched if you were building a connection. If you think about our relationship, I realized a long time ago that the the types of touch that we associate with a a relationship type, we assume are sort of normal, right? Like strangers, we generally don't touch. And when they're within arm's distance, most people feel uncomfortable if somebody is facing them and they're within arm's distance. If they turn a different direction, that anxiety is uh, reduced because they're no longer a physical threat. But if they're facing them, they could potentially be hit or, or there could be a physical conflict. Acquaintances, we generally touch from the top of shoulders down to the fingertips. Um, we greet them. We tap on the shoulder. Excuse me, do you know how to get to the subway? Next time you see them, they're like, oh, I know that guy. He asked me for directions. They feel a little bit more comfortable as long as you don't do anything crazy. Uh, we might shake their hands. Like that's in Western culture, that's a common way to initiate touch and go from a stranger to an acquaintance. Uh, we all know what it feels like when our friends touch us. People who are intimate with us, we tend to have prolonged touch with, right? And all that is is sort of moving along on a continuum from friendship through um, as we build trust. We generally have intimate relationships where we have prolonged touch. We might hold somebody's hand. They might sit on the couch and their leg is against theirs. And it doesn't build a lot of anxiety. We feel comfortable with them. I could talk more about this, but in, in his case, he had to, had to figure out how to work through it. Um, I'm going to use another example um, of where somebody's body restricted them and can actually jump in for a moment yeah, and speak absolutely. to that yeah so in an example like that there's trauma living in his body and all trauma like trauma what it basically means is that there is an intuitive instinct that's been suppressed so in an instant like that with a, a boy who's been subject to physical abuse you most of the time as a kid you can't run away and you can't fight back you might run away in the moment but you can't run away from your family really so he had to suppress those instincts so what somatic processing is, if I were working with him in a somatic context, what we might do is actually go into the felt experience. I might actually reach my hand out toward his shoulder to activate that impulse that comes up inside of his body to flinch. And what I would do is I would guide him into the felt experience of that. So what's happening in your body right now as you're wanting to flinch, uh, as, you're, as you're noticing me coming closer, what's the energy and and working with him on a, on a strictly felt level to allow him bit by bit, um, sometimes it's bit by bit and sometimes it happens in big, you know, it pops open in big chunks to express that energy. If, you know, if um, there's a part of himself that he suppressed back then to say like, to say, no, this is not okay and to push back at the person, but it wasn't safe back then, we might do that now. He might get in his body and he might find the the impulse in his body to push back at me to push my hand away maybe to start with or even to like to push me back push me away from him and y'all get the fuck away from me and so like somatic doing work in a somatic context is like that it's about accessing our body's intuition and and allowing it to express in a physical way yeah i think it's awesome it makes me think of a couple things one is i, I did a a podcast recently with uh, this guy who seems Mark. Um, I'm gonna have to go back and look it up, but he's the head of the UCLA um, psychiatric center or something like that. Um, he's written several books and he had a process he described where he says he'll have somebody or even he'll do this with himself. If he has some, some issue, he'll say like, well, what happened? Um, how do I think about it? How do I feel? What do I want to do? What would be a better thing to do? And, and then he will actually sort of, find some actionable item 
that he will do. And, um, and so that gets him out of his body. I mean, I really like that example of somebody being pushed on the ground and being forced to use their body to get up. For us, when we're coaching people, uh, if somebody is, and we chip at problems in, from lots of different directions. So let's say we find that somebody has a hard time uh, getting their voice over a certain volume. And so they, like we asked them to speak louder. We're like, we can't hear you. Cause usually like a social indicator, someone says, I can't hear you. And you're in a group, you're not speaking loud enough. And most people are physically capable of doing that. And so what we'll do is we'll just, uh, we'll make them scream and, uh, scream as loud as they can. And oftentimes it's hard, but we're, what we're trying to do is we're trying to force them to push past this physical constraint that's been conditioned into them because maybe their parents, uh, they got in a lot of trouble when their kids were being too loud or their parents were sort of antsy about that and created some form of anxiety. Um, usually say bad experiences lead to bad expectations, bad expectations, uh, develop into bad emotions, bad emotions, uh, lead to anxieties and series of behaviors, procrastination, resentment, anger, frustration, isolation. And we go down the list. And then what happens is we go back and then we don't get the experiences we need. And it goes into this like sort of negative circle. And, um, but with our clients, like we, we definitely have to do, we do things like that with this guy. Uh, I was talking about coaching earlier. We would, there's a few things he did the flinching. So we had to practice or what we did was we just did a lot of different touch examples and helped him sort of work through it that way. Uh, we had well, one point I had him sitting across from a girl and he had trouble holding eye contact. And so we started with just holding eye contact for 30 seconds and then 45 seconds and then 60 seconds. And we'd talk about what came up and what he felt. And then we had to do it with, uh, while holding hands and talk about, uh, what he felt while doing that. And each time we're sort of trying to increase his capacity for holding eye contact and for touch, but, bo- uh, both separately and then together. And the idea is that like later on when he goes out, he, it, he can do this stuff more instinctively. It's like greasing the rails so that when he reaches this sort of physical boundary later on, he is able to, uh, sort of move more smoothly through it. And, uh, and it sounds like some of the work that you're doing is very similar um, in certain regards. Might be you might be approaching a little bit differently, but um, this idea that these traumas are held in our body. And I want to see a couple examples of places where I've seen this. And then I know that you're running short on time. We can wrap this up, but I I definitely would like your thoughts. I know um, I did a, mo- a body movement class several years ago, and the teacher said, "Well, don't correct the bodies unless uh, call me over first if you notice that there's something off, right?" And she used the example, like for a visual example, she goes, think about a skeleton, right? Like you have a skeleton, it's on a string and like you put it on the ground and the way the feet hit the ground and the way the knees bend and, and the way that the whole body sort of gravity affects it. Like that's how your muscular, that's how your skeletal system should move. But you get all these anxieties and traumas and, and injuries and which another form of trauma in your muscles and it starts tweaking things. And I noticed this girl was leaning on the outside of her feet. And so I called the teacher over and she rolled her feet over so that her weight was directly over her feet. So her, once that happens, your feet start to spread out. And it turned out that when she did that immediately, she immediately started crying and it brought up all these emotions from when she was in a car accident. And what happened is she hurt her leg. That was a horrible trauma. A lot of negative emotions that were associated with that because she was in pain constantly. Then her, her right side started mirroring her left side or left side started mirroring her right side either way. And so she had to bring her back into alignment and work through that emotional trauma. And every single class I went to, I did this for a summer people were crying because we didn't even realize we had all these traumas. Um, I mentioned my buddy Ali who connected us and he took me to a breathing class somewhere in Santa Monica and the whole, ex- all anyone did was breathe, right? We had to breathe for like half an hour 
and breathe fully. But most people don't breathe fully. And when they breathe fully, their muscles sort of relax and these traumas start surfacing and people were crying and distraught and, and, uh, but it's a really powerful thing because like if we don't work through them, through this stuff, it's still there. Yeah. And that, and so I love the examples that you're giving, like these are filling it out in a great way. And it, it, it speaks to the difficulty in this conversation too. You're talking about like, Oh, well this, this girl adjusted her feet and she started crying and it brought up this, tr- it's like, number one, how do you describe that experience to somebody? Number two, how do you translate that experience and describe it to somebody else and say like, Oh, this would help you also. Um, and it's speaking to the intangibility of this somatic work of, of what, you know, what you're saying is, is true and words, you know, we can do our best to put words to it, but it ultimately until we've experienced it and lived it in our own bodies, we don't really get what it means, uh, to, to process emotions on a somatic level like this. And it's the, it's the platform that the entire rest of our lives are built up upon. You know, that, that part of our brain, the brain stem and the limbic brain, those are the core parts of our operating system that everything else is structured upon. And if those parts have messaging imprinted upon them that says the world is not safe or, or, you know, somebody reaching out to touch my shoulder is not safe, um, or, you know, on and on a whole list of different things for different people. Um, no amount of thinking ultimately is going to bypass that stuff until we can actually go in. The only way we can access those deeper parts of our brain is through the body and through our felt sense. And so it's only through breath work exercises or through a dance or, you know, f- f- physical movement, embodiment exercises, exercises where we're, um, <clears throat> tapping into the felt sense inside of our body that we can uh, allow those parts to release themselves. And sometimes words might be helpful to get us there, but ultimately it's the physical experience. It's the sensation, it's the tears, it's the, the energy, the the body heats up. It's these different things that ultimately are what uh, resolve the trauma. Robert, this has been absolutely awesome. Um, I know that you're crunched on time, but thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And if you're listening to this and you want to learn more about Robert, we're going to post some links on the Craft Christmas website in the description of this podcast so you can find out about him more easily. Thank you again for coming on the show. Yeah, yeah it's been a pleasure talking with you. And um, thanks so much for just diving into this stuff. Um, love that you're bringing dating and relationships to men and that you're willing to dive into deeper stuff like somatic healing and stuff like that. It's dating coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.